0: Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 101. Port Natal was steeped in fear and loathing in late 1828 following Shaka's assassination on the 24th of September, which had thrown the traders into a panic. They anticipated that Shaka's death would lead to a civil war and that they'd be targeted in the coming political storm. Most fled their homesteads and clambered aboard the schooner Elizabeth and Susan and departed for Algoa Bay. On the 28th of September, word was sent by Shaka's murderers, his brothers Dingaan and Implangana, that the traders were assured of friendship and protection, and Dingaan, in particular asked them not to leave. However, they had seen what happened when the Zulus fought over succession and understood the power of the regents, so they let caution eclipse valour and sailed away on Elizabeth and Susan on December 1st. Some stayed behind. Most returned to Port Elizabeth, but not before Dingaan's messenger arrived. Both he and Mtlangana sought the support of Cape officials, and with that ringing in his ears, Francis Farewell scarpered. Meanwhile, Shaka's Baluli Impi was still away on campaign, so the Abantuana wanted to avoid more conflict with the Amampondo, the Batra, and other neighbours. If the colonists left, and without their powerful army, perhaps these other smaller nations would try and seize cattle or attack the outlying Zulu homesteads. Before he was murdered, Shaka had been raising an entirely new regiment of youths called the Izinyozi, the Bees, and Dingan and Plangana added weight to this young Ubuntu by forming another called Itlomindlini, the Home Guard. Whenever the main army is away, it's always useful to have some sort of home guard available, wouldn't you say? And so it was that Nongalazaka Nondela led this Utlomendlini Mbutu and soon was to become known as the top induna fighting for Dingan. These men were similar to any other group of men left behind when there's a call-up. They were older, and some were not the most motivated when it came to military discipline. Others had simply evaded the Balule Impi. Several hundred of these half-hearted fighters were Izayendani, the menials and cattle guards serving the Amakanda south of Tugela. If you remember episode 99 and 100, by now Mbopa was the acting king awaiting the return of the Baluli Impi, after which it would be decided whether Dingan or Mtlangana would be the new Zulu king. As it is with conspirators, neither trusted the other, despite the fact they were brothers, and in fact, being brothers just made it worse. Dingan and Implangana began to circle each other like angry lions, mistrust and antagonism developing literally by the day. It had all been very well in the killing of Shaka, a bit like the moment Caesar was stabbed. Now what? Who is numero uno and who isn't? At first they worked in concert, sending a joint force of the Utlomendlini and Izinyozi under Mbopa's tight command to deal with Nandi's other son and Shaka's half-brother, Ngwadi Kai Ngendayana. Apparently, Dingan and Mtangana received word that Ngwadi was planning to take revenge for Shaka's assassination. Unfortunately for Mbopa and his impi, Ngwadi had turned his home into a fortress, increasing the fence's size using large logs and tree trunks and thorn bushes. When the Impi arrived in late October 1828, Nkwadi and his men fought to the death. So did their women in a battle that has a Viking-like resonance. Mbopa's force was mauled in turn by these hard-fighting Zulus of Nkwadi and suffered crippling casualties. Then Dingan and Mplangana's power was further eroded by reports that they were beginning to backbite each other and that their Impi to Nkwadi had almost been defeated. These stories filtered along the coast and up to where the Baluli army was on its return from raiding around the Swazi region. The MP had actually slowed down on return, fearing that Shaka would kill some of the leaders, or worse, after they had been defeated by the Swazi. Now, Dingane was sure the indunas of this returning army would support him, but Imtlangana was actually in a stronger position. His mother was Senzangakona's fifth wife, whereas Dingan's mother was the sixth. He was in front of Dingaan in the succession race. Implangana had been more active during the murder of Shaka. He'd jumped over Shaka's prone body, proclaiming him as the king's conqueror. It was in late November when this dispute was finally brought before the royal house and the nobles of the realm. The main interrogator was Nglingalele Ka Mvulana, Shaka's protégé. He'd been appointed induna of the Butulési people. Sitting near in Nlengalele was Nonkloba, Shaka's half-sister. Nandi's daughter. Also present, and apparently the person who actually took control, was Auntie Imkabai, Nandi's sister. It is said by the oral storytellers that despite all these powerful men and some women hanging about, it was Imkabai who really ran the show. Let it not be said, dear listener, that the days of yore were dominated by men of power in paternalistic societies, for that would be misreading the power of women. This may have been November 1828, long before the word feminism hit our lexicon, but it doesn't mean that women of power weren't able to take crucial decisions. I've often thought how extraordinarily pompous it is of modern sociologists and social engineering professionals to write off ancient women, or at least women of distant times, as having no power, and therefore as perennial victims. Women like Imkabai were terrifying for men. Macho and dunas who'd wet their spears, and many battles actually avoided confronting her. She was too aggressive, too assertive, not to mention physically imposing. She was about six foot tall. and must have been quite a sight on that day, because Mkabai arrived at this most symbolic of Zulu gatherings, dressed as a man. Just to reinforce the message that if there was going to be fighting, she'd have to be fought, She wore the umklbele outfit of a regent, a king, blue monkey and genet tails, three girdles of kilts worn one on top of the other. One pulled low over the hips, the other raised over the top, and the third over the shoulders. Her entire body was covered with these valuable skins. She also wore the traditional headdress of a male ruler, including a long crane feather, and carried a war shield similar to shark's. It was white with a black spot. Just to further reinforce the don't-mess-with-me appearance, She held a bundle of spears in one hand and a single, long, threatening-looking barbed spear in the other. What a sight. I'm sure you can imagine the scene. Here are all the serious, self-important men gathered in a mutual admiration huddle, and in walks Mkabai dressed like them. Like a warrior. And who was going to argue? None. They kept their mouths very tightly shut. It had so happened that Imkabai had wanted Shaka out of the way for a while. He was destabilizing Zululand and she'd had enough of his increasingly bizarre mental flip-flopping. Imkabai also happened to prefer Dingaan to Implangana, now that Shaka was dead. So she stood before the royal gents and is quoted as saying, Yabo, Zulu people, what are you saying now that a madman from the Imtetwa country, and by that she obviously means Shaka is dead. He was not a chief. He became chief through his madman's strength. He killed Sugujana, the real heir of Senzangakona. No one said a word. They just looked at him. As Sugujana is no longer living, there is the son of Miyeya. Well, to be strictly accurate, Miyeya was the mother of Mpikasi, who was Dingaan's mother. So Dingan was Miyeya's grandson. Despite the fact that she'd goaded both Dingon and Implangana to kill Shaka, she said the latter could not be king because now, by killing Shaka, Implangana was actually unfit to rule. Watching reactions amongst the royal gents was Implangalele Kamvulana, who then popped up that the one with the red assegai should not rule, i.e. Implangana. But hadn't Dingaan grabbed Shaka and some say had joined the stabbing of his brother? This was forgotten because the fearful Mkabai had spoken. The assassination was morphing into a storyline where Dingan did no stabbing, only grabbing. Therefore, he could be king because he hadn't really murdered Shaka. These counsellors did not include either Dingan or Mkhangana. The brothers were chewing on their fears and loathing well away from the gathering, awaiting the result. What happened next is a warning for all those who get involved in political backstabbing, because Mkabai was far too clever just to announce the result. Imtlangana, of course, was a dangerous man. He had supporters and may mobilize them against the conspirators. Mkabai and Inklangalele conferred, agreeing that Mkabai should be killed. He should be terminated with extreme prejudice, and immediately. Mbopa, freshly returned from his casualty-ridden assault on Nkwadi's fortress, was once again to be crucial in the coming conspiracy. He was going to conduct a whispering campaign to increase discord between the brothers. He would tell both that the other was planning to kill him. Plots and counterplots. Neither should have trusted this Mbopa man by now. He'd proven to be craven in his self promotion. Mbopa's name, just by the way, means tie him up or tied up. That should have been a hint. Kwadukuza is a hot town, at least. Down the hill towards the beach, it's the kind of place where the kings and other famous people back in the day, like Shaka, like to head off to bathe in the crystal clear streams on hot days, or better, jog down to the beach, much cooler there, and it gets very hot and very humid in November. Dingaan invited his brother Mflangana to go bathing with him in the Mavevani, a small stream close to the Kwadukusa homestead. The river is known as the Imbozama these days. Nkwadi, who was now residing uneasily with his ancestors, courtesy of the recent attack led by Mbopa, had actually killed Sigujana on Shaka's behalf, using exactly the same ruse you're going to hear now. So you'd imagine that Implangana would have been suspicious of this offer to go swimming. Imkabai wanted this to be a quick and dirty murder. So her men leapt out when Implangana arrived at the river without his spears, as Dingon had requested, and the attackers proceeded to drown him. We probably need to have a special episode looking at how names can cause trouble. As John LeBunt writes in his book The Eight Zulu Kings, one of the best-known Zulu historians pointed out later that a name sometimes reflects its owner like a person's shadow. Mflangana's future was in his name, and Mflanga is a reed swamp, as in Mflanga Rocks. Mflangana was drowned amongst the reeds. He realized at the last second he was about to be killed and shouted, Nye, son of Satay! It was Mboppa, by the way. Have you done this to me? Dingaan's praise poet wasted no time shortly afterwards and composed the following words. Deep river pool at Mavavani, Dingana, the pool is silent and overpowering. It drowned someone intending to wash and he vanished, head ring and all. Chilling stuff. A week later, the Baluli Empire began arriving home in dribs and drabs. They had walked most of the last miles along the KwaZulu north coast and were exhausted. Many were sick from malaria contracted around the northern regions, others were starving, and only about a third of the warriors actually survived. Nathaniel Isaacs noted in his diary it was another significant defeat for the Zulu. These tired men found Dingaan had been installed as the new king. Not only was he izikulu, but he was also calling himself the umala mulel, the intervener. He had managed to insert himself between the people and that mad tetwa man called Shaka. His praise poets furiously began to compose new odes, including one where he was lauded as the one who acted on behalf of the people, the mediator. Dingaan was acutely aware of his precarious position, so he passed a host of. Luxury laws, if you like, designed to pacify the men of the kingdom. For example, from now on, unmarried Amabuto warriors could freely enjoy premarital sex. He also allowed the older men to immediately don headrings and to take many wives and set up their new homesteads. They were now Abba Numzan. Then he slaughtered a bunch of his cows and fed the soldiers better. These acts immediately pacified the Baluli Impi. They accepted the new king without so much as a backward glance at Shaka's fading memory. The royal councillors gathered for the Ukubuzana, the day in which all the great men of the land sat together to talk about this new king called Dingan. Hours of discussions followed, which went along the lines of, ''We must take great care of this king and not act evilly towards him.'' Which then led to a deputation heading to the Inkusan to Dingaan, inviting him to leave his Ikanda, his great house where he'd lived as a prince, and to transfer to Shaka's Ikanda as a king. Dingaan was already forty years old, and as part of the process of being finally anointed, he was nominated by Auntie Mkabai. He was a portly fellow, this new king, but remarkably light on his feet. When he heard the news he'd been proclaimed officially as the regent, he performed a high-energy dance called the Okujiya, then entered the Inlambelo. This is the enclosure where kings wash. Medicine men, the Zulu doctors, were inside with him and they pasted colorful patches over his skin, different medicines to strengthen him and his resolve in his rule. We have photographs and Zulu descriptions of Dingan much later. He was thought of as good-looking, his aide, or to Tununu, said he was mpofu, which means his skin was light brown. He was 1.7 meters tall. He grew a small beard. He had corners, fat thighs and a fat neck, but was tough. Because he had patches of hair on his body like shaka. he was regarded as even stronger, and his izabongo sang, Hairy one with hair like a lion's, having hair even on the legs. Men who had body hair were regarded as extra strong and tough by the Zulus of the 1820s. They would be referred to as lions, particularly if they had hairy legs. A group of hairy men would be arriving soon to greet Dingon. Some would be missionaries, others would be boers. Some he'd leave alive, others he'd kill. Dingon had a large fleshy chin and tended to sweat easily and he began to develop a name for himself when it came to self-indulgence. He built up a truly massive isigodlo, his harem. His court was more splendid and impressive and full of pageantry than any other Zulu monarch before or since. When he travelled, his mbongi could be heard hundreds of metres away shouting his praises accompanied by hundreds of amabutu, izinduna and isikulu. As he walked, his Isinkleku courtiers would walk either side of him, but at least fifty paces away, while others would scurry forward and flatten the grass and remove pebbles from his pathway. When he stopped to rest, being overweight, this was often, a large white shield would be held over his head. He kept over 500 women at his new great place, his ikanda called Umkungulovu, the place that encloses the elephant, and he was the elephant. The new homestead was in the Amakosini Valley, surrounded by excellent grazing, full of thorn trees, acacia, aloes, flowering euphorbias. It was set up on the Sigunyama Hill between the Mkumbandi and Nzola streams. This is 10 kilometres south of Ulundi and 30 kilometres from Malmoth. The white Mfalosi River flows past. Tingan was making a political statement as he shifted the Zulu centre from Kwadukuza back north. He had been uncomfortable with Shaka migrating his power closer to the white traders, which had meant they had been interfering in his daily affairs. Dingaan moved away, a purposeful act. The hub of the kingdom was now far north of both the Tugela and Umplatuzi rivers, back in the traditional core of the Emakozini valley. Dingaan built an oval-shaped Ikanda, with a great parade ground, 600 by 500 meters in size, a magnificent open space, and often spoken about by visitors as truly gigantic. There were about 1,700 huts in rows of six to eight deep. About 7,000 people would pack into the space for the important festivals. The women's enclosure, the Izugodlo, was at the foot of the Sigunyama Hill, Divided, as always, between the black side under Imjanizi one of Sinzangakona's widows, and the less prestigious white section under Bibi. Remember, she was Sinzangakona's favourite and beautiful wife. These two old matrons were still alive and had survived a great deal. They had bear witness to still more significant and historic moments. Dingaan had watched the English traders take full control of Port Natal and knew they wanted autonomy to kill the elephants and to convert the land to a new form of farming. But he also valued their goods, and decided to leave them alone at first. Most of the fearful traders who'd fled actually returned in early 1829, and within a few years, they laid out a large township on the north side of the bay, away from the bluff, past where Farewell had his home, and the new township was about to get a new name called Durban. That was to come in 1835. Before then... We need to continue probing the year 1829, and to do this properly, we must shift our gaze westwards. The Tswana in the west had been embroiled in struggles which mirrored the turmoil amongst the Ndwandwe, that Kwabe, and Nguani, and then the Zulu over the same period. This conflict across the high was intensified by a desire to increase cattle through raiding, particularly in the Rustenburg area. By now, the Tswana population had grown significantly, and there was pressure on land. The southern Kalahari prevented expansion west, and the instability on the eastern coast increased conflict around the upper Vaal River. The northeastern region could not be settled properly because of the fly belt along the Limpopo River, which meant it was unsuitable for cattle. This left territory in between that was productive and ripe for raiding. Most people of the interior also viewed the increasing number of European traders from the south, of the Cape, and from the east to Delagoa Bay as a positive development. As you'll hear in the coming episodes, the original Ndebele people of the Highveld predated Mzilekazi, and it's important to understand how these folks were subsumed by him and his Kumalo warriors from Zululand. We'll step back in time, then roll forward to the moment that this extraordinary man who left when Shaka came to power ended up traipsing across southern Africa, and his story sounds like the Israelites at times. Before 1820, the Tswana chieftains in the western Highveld and southern Kalahari region had been expanding their territory. It was into this seething area that Mzilikazi marched. He also marched into a region where political power was being centralized, but was destabilized. He was to find that bureaucrats existed at all levels of Tswana society, and their role was to facilitate the amalgamation of separate communities into larger confederations. When the Tswana-speaking chiefdoms had formed centralized kingdoms by the mid-1820s, they were clashing at times and it was at this time that the hungry wolf descended. Just to add a little twist into this indibeli historic ripple, the Transvaal Indibeli are a relatively obscure group of people who first arrived at the banks of the Vaal River between 1630 and 1670, predating Mzilikati's arrival by almost 200 years. I'll explain next episode how he came to co-opt this identity. Folks... It's an epic tale. It's full of the good and bad of Southern Africa. And the tale which I'll continue telling next episode is grand and petty, local and transcontinental, honorable and despicable. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. It helps increase the visibility of the series. Don't forget to head over to the website desmondlatham.blog. You can email me through the link there, or you can contact me through Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, salagatli. Thank you.